0: Pocket.
1: Hello and welcome back to the Rabbit Hole Detectives, a podcast where I, Dr Kat Jarman, Richard Coles and Charles Spencer, chase the provenance of historical objects, both real and metaphorical. Each episode, we set one another the task of finding out as much as we can about a particular subject to present a comprehensive understanding of the origin stories of stuff. After all, everything has a history. It just depends on how far down the rabbit hole you're prepared to go. And at the end of it all, our disappointed voice pronounces a winner. The Hello again, rabbit holies.
0: It's very nice to be here. I know, we're actually in situ, yes. in our place.
1: I am so pleased. This is so nice to be three dimensions again.
0: I know, but I'm missing the large pot plant, which I found out was made of plastic. Oh, <laughs> dear. Yes. Some things have changed.
1: So I don't yes. think it's died, I think. <laughs> it's <laughs> just actually.
2: hopefully Great excitement out in the world at the new disembodied voice. I'm on tour at the moment, and people have been... Crowds have formed in the street. It's yes. Like, Who's your new disembodied voice? Isn't that that's great? One. Top secret.
0: Yeah, because you, you were quite upset with the last one, even though he turned out to be quite a fan of your work yes
2: you? yes it is. but i'm uh you know capricious just, no i wouldn't say that at all I, I just want everyone to be happy
1: well you know we, we felt it was a little bit too loaded on your side so well we you know. did have
2: history in the last disembodied voice it's a clean slate now folks isn't it it is let's see if what we can do to win her to our to our needs i feel like
1: we all have to work a bit harder now don't
3: we because we've got someone new to impress.
0: Oh, yeah. And sharp. I can tell there's a sharpness there.
3: Oh, thank you very much. I won't let any of these compliments sway me in my decision making (laughs) today, I can assure you.
2: That's what the last one said, disembodied voice. (laughs) And look at him now, ruined.
1: (laughs) Oh, brilliant. Right, well, I think we should just get onto it and see how we get on. So we're going to be starting with you today, Charles, and you are going to be telling us everything you found out about the real Macbeth.
0: Yes. So I stumbled across the real Macbeth when writing a book recently. And I thought, my goodness, I mean, Shakespeare has done a very thorough hatchet job on him because, you know, this is considered one of his great historic tragedies, Shakespeare. It's up there with Julius Caesar and King Lear and Hamlet as one of the great four, I suppose, from that genre. And I think it's very unfair, really, because Macbeth is in our consciousness now because of the way he's been written about by Shakespeare. He is a sort of, well, henpecked neurotic, a traitor and and an appalling, loathsome human being who gets his comeuppance as he deserves. And yet that's so far from the Macbeth that I think is the real one. I'm obviously going back a thousand years, you know, to look at the real one. But I want to actually just put into context before we look at this, why? Why would Shakespeare have felt the need to do down this absolutely admirable King of Scotland from long ago and it really comes down to politics. This play was first shown, Macbeth was first shown in 1606 which is relevant it was the year after the gunpowder plot when Roman Catholics conspired to blow up the King and Parliament and were saved at the last minute and i think there was this sort of need at the time from this great playwright if you remember shakespeare was his company was called the king's men they were basically patronized by james I to show the terrible consequences of regicide of killing a monarch and the need for loyalty the whole aspect of the witches and their brew on the heath you're looking at a a reference there to james the very real belief in witchcraft and demonology. So this is the sort of background. Shakespeare wants to flatter his king into thinking that there is no worse crime than regicide, and people who do it will come very much undone. But this is so far removed from this poor man, Macbeth, who actually comes from a very bloody period of Scottish history. You barely get to know a character from a page of Scottish monarchical history at this time without them being killed on the next page. But we do know that he was a very popular king at the time. He started as an Earl in Moray, Moray, um, up in the north of Scotland. It's the sort of area with the capital around Inverness, and it goes from the Spey down to Loch Ness, really. And it was a very important buffer zone against your ancestors' cat. Uh, <laughs> it was seen as a, a blocker between Viking and Norseman incursions and the real Scotland as such. And so he was not just an earl; he was almost like a, a sub king. I've been to Cawdor Castle, which is that way. Is that Macbeth HQ? that 's very much what they would claim in their tourist brochure now, mm-hmm. but in fact, the HQ would be Dunsinane, you know which is in in the play, which was a fortified area uh, north of Perth, that was where he was settled as his power base when he was king. Part of the reason he became king was in time honored way at this time was murdering the person before him. But it wasn't, if I can cross-refer the play which we know, it wasn't sweet old King Duncan who was a guest and killed in his bed at all. Duncan was actually the same age as Macbeth, and he was a uh, somebody who had killed in his own time, and there was revenge going in every direction. So we have all this trouble between endless Malcolms and Duncans. There are endless kings at this time with those names. Essentially, they end up murdering each other, butchering each other's sons. Uh, Macbeth is accused of killing 50 of the henchmen of King Duncan, along with Duncan himself in a fire. He's supposed to have burnt them all in a hall. Very much a sort of scene from one of the Viking uh, <laughs> yes. miniseries that we watch.
1: Sounds familiar.
0: So, I think I've got some of the names jumbled up there, disembodied voice, so if you could untangle my Scottish mess there, that would be very helpful.
3: I would be very happy to do so. So, Macbeth's father was killed in 1020 by his cousin, it's reported, in order to take his earldom. Uh, but Macbeth did eventually seek his revenge on his cousin, whose name was Gilly Comagain By killing him, 50 of his men, as you mentioned, that was in 1032. About less than a decade later, Macbeth went on to kill Duncan I for the crown.
2: It does sound like the stuff of saga and warlike
0: chieftains, doesn't it, rather than... Well, that's a very intelligent comment because... Is it? uh, Well, I know, I know. Let's (laughs) let's mark that one. (laughs) No, no. Um, But in fact, there is a sort of tradition to this whereby, um, Kat, you'd know this, but from Scandinavian and Scottish history rather than folklore, people would marry the widow of the man they murdered. And in fact, the real Lady Macbeth was the widow of the man that Macbeth killed. And we think how extraordinary she must have been forced to do it. But there's no sign that the marriage was anything other than happy. There were no issue, no children from that marriage. But she had uh, Lady Macbeth, although she wasn't known as that, but I'm going to call her Lady Macbeth, was the mother of a child called Lulach, L-U-L-A-C-H, who was Macbeth's stepson, but also his adopted son, and would inherit the kingdom very briefly after his life. But I think we have to remember this king. He was a very fair king, very much respected by the Scottish people. And he brought in laws to protect widows and orphans. He was powerful and rich enough in 1050 to go to Rome on a progress there, a pilgrimage, to pay his respects to the Pope there, probably with Lady Macbeth in tow. And he impressed the locals in Rome with his huge generosity to the poor, this was considered a very great thing for a nobleman to do, to give money in large quantities to those that really needed it. And he brought about a, a kingdom of prosperity and respect. Scotland was quite a diverse group at this time with a lot of chieftains who wanted to become king. And he ruled for 17 years, less effectively towards the end, because we have Malcolm III was determined to undermine... Macbeth and avenged the death of his father, and he whittled away at Macbeth's southern Scottish bases and at the same time managed to get the Pope's blessing to do the same. And they managed to have this great sort of standoff fight after, essentially, Macbeth hiding in the Highlands for three years with his family. He comes down and and loses in battle. And if you go to a place called Lumpfernan, I don't know if you pronounce that. I I hope all the Scottish people listening will forgive all of my butchering of their place names. They'll let us know. (laughs) But in Aberdeenshire, northeast Scotland, he made his last stand and was overwhelmed and was taken over to a rock where he was beheaded. Anyway, that's what the the site will tell you today. But instantly there was a sort of smear campaign against him And his heir, Lulach, his stepson and adopted son. And I think this is what Shakespeare was playing with, and the chroniclers who came afterwards were playing on the, the besmirching of their name from Malcolm III onwards. So we find that Malcolm III calls himself Malcolm Canmore. This is all branding, really. Malcolm Canmore, which means great. Chief, and then he calls Luluck Luluck the Fatuous, uh, which <laughs> meant actually beyond what we know as, as the simple minded. Better than butter penis. <laughs> yeah, yes, yes. <laughs> Maybe that was thrown in too. And then you know, this is a time of total carnage, and soon enough, you know, Malcolm the Third and his son are ambushed by William Rufus's forces, mm. who I think we might be hearing about later in ten ninety three. So it was a really topsy turvy time, but. I think, when I think about Macbeth, I don't know about you, Richard and Kat, when you think about him, you think of this sort of rather weak, perhaps wily, but not very able man. We do have a description of him from the early Middle Ages. The strong one was fair, yellow-haired and tall. Very pleasant was that handsome youth to me. And so he had people's respect. And they said he had that Scotland had a brimful of food east and west during the reign of the ruddy brave king. I don't know. I wanted to do this subject today because I felt, you know, I've done defamation (laughs) as a theme, but nobody can be more defamed than Macbeth. I was trying to think, what is the strap line from Shakespeare that applies to Macbeth and his lady? And it is this line of vaulting ambition which o'erleaps itself. And that is what we take away. And just very briefly, before I get to my favourite fact, I just wanted to say that Lady Macbeth seems to have been a very decent human being. Quite soon after she came back from the trip to Rome, she decided to set up a monastery, a Celtic monastery, on Loch Leven, which was Created to pray for her and Macbeth's souls in perpetuity. And, you know, she was a perfectly reasonable human being who we don't know what happened to her actually. There's been tales that she committed suicide after her husband was killed, but we don't actually know that. How unified was Scotland in the 11th century? I mean, if you. Was the King of Scotland just a sort of. Was it de facto or was it. Yeah, you had a claim to the Scottish throne. Essentially, if you came from one of the bloodline of the great three sort of chieftains, it came over from Ireland in this early 6th century. And actually Macbeth was descended from one of them, Lady Macbeth from a, another. So you were in the game, and then it was about um, killing your neighbour, really, and getting to the top. It was brutal, brutal stuff. It's every bit as bloody and unpleasant as Shakespeare's tale, but Macbeth was a, a good king and not the craven one we think of.
2: fascinating that he was plugged into... A wide world, European thought, pilgrimage to Rome.
1: We forget that, I think, about that point in time and earlier as well. So Britain, Scandinavia, you know, all these places, we think of them as sort of a little bit on the edge, but actually they're not. They are very much on the European scene. And you see at the same time in England, you've got lots of contacts with the East, you know, with, with all these courts in places like Kiev. And and it's actually connected so much more. Wider. Going to pilgrimage to Rome has been happening for, you know, Centuries by that point, Alfred the Great goes on pilgrimage to Rome when he's, you know, five. And it's just a completely normal thing. So even though Scotland has sort of seen as on the edge, it's, it's really not.
0: And actually, before 1066, there were an enormous number of Normans involved in English life. It wasn't a sudden transfusion of Viking blood from the Norman branch.
2: And I think we forget, don't we, as English people that Scotland is a different country with its own history and its own alliances, the old alliance between Scotland and France. We think of it, if we think of it at all, as a sort of remote end of Scotland with a kilt
0: and a haggis, don't we? But that's a very, <laughs> very patronising way of thinking about Scotland, isn't it? It's, just, it's not yeah. that. No, their kings and queens are extraordinary figures in their own right. I mean, really bloody, though, the history of those kings and queens. I do have a favourite fact. Yes, I'm please. And this really is a rabbit hole. I mean, I was thinking Macbeth and I thought, well who was the real King Lear and maybe you know this but there was supposedly a King Lear but really a long time ago in the 8th century BC according to 12th century historians he was around at the same time as Elijah and he I didn't know this this is my real joy that he was essentially the man who founded Leicester the city of Leicester (laughs) Leicester comes from Lear and it's, it's Lear's place He inherited the kingdom after his father, a man called Bladud, B-L-A-D-U-D, died while trying to fly with man-made wings. So that didn't go very well. And then he reigned for 60 years. He did have three daughters, two of whom, Goneril and Regan, were bad news and their husbands, and they kicked him out. He went to live in France with Cordelia, who'd married the king of the Franks. Where's this all from? This is all legend, historical legend. Yeah. And then he came back for what turned out to be his last two years. He was put back on the throne by Cordelia and the Frankish army. And then when he died, he's buried in an underground shrine in Leicester.
2: So there's more than one king buried in Leicester. Well, did you know also that Leicester is where we have our National Space Museum? So pioneers of flight, there's another <laughs> <laughs> link there.
1: What I find so fascinating about this is how we have these people, so macbeth or richard the third or whoever and the vast majority of people will know or think they know them from that essentially fiction or historical fiction and if you think about you know programs today and historical fiction i get asked this a lot about what i think about you know viking programs or whatever and people do sort of learn that part of the history they don't go back and interrogate the, the, the real sources behind them and it's interesting if it is really wrong you know if this person, parts of the character or part of the history are yes. misrepresented. How I've always that thought still... that
0: actually, Kat. I've always thought it would be really good as a service when you're watching anything that's supposedly based on fact, if there was some rating system where you could just go on a computer and click down and find the real story, what, yeah. what they've borrowed and what they've invented.
1: Exactly. And it's great to sort of try and do that. And I, I get asked this sort of thing, you know, is that right? Did they really do this? And I agree. Maybe we should start that. Maybe that should be our next uh, a, venture. I mean, it
2: was a very live topic in biblical studies as well, because how reliable is scripture as a historical account? Well, some there's an argument about that, but the evidence suggests that oral tradition actually preserves quite faithfully elements of fact. But we, it's very hard to work out what's, what's what. But, you know, if you go to Jerusalem, they would say, well, this is the spot where... Jesus played hopscotch with Mary Magdalene. You think, But there are bits where we know he and the apostles would have been because there was nowhere else they could have been and it's still there, you know, something.
1: Brilliant. I think we're going to move swiftly from Macbeth, thank you for that, to you, Richard. I don't know if there's a link. I was trying to come up with a link here going from that to Moral Panics.
2: Well, I think I can probably...
1: Can you find a link?
2: I think I can, but I'm not going to start with it because I want to start... A couple of weekends ago, step with me, if you will, (laughs) onto the crunching shingle of the beach at Brighton on a bank holiday weekend. Well, that's where I was last bank holiday weekend with my pal Johnny. And we went for lunch at the Salt Room, which I would highly recommend, by the way. I have no commercial relationship with the place at all. And we looked out across that shingle beach on a bank holiday weekend, and we saw lots of people, holidaymakers, doing the sorts of things you do. What a different scene was Whitson Bank Holiday, 1964, because it was the infamous scene of the pitched battle between Mods. And rockers, one of the most vivid events, I suppose, of the early 60s as Britain changed hugely socially, economically, culturally in that period. There was a huge hoo ha about this. A thousand mods and rockers met on the beach. There were mods and rockers met on the beach at Margate, mods and rockers met on the beach at Clacton. Mods being short haired, scooter riding, scar listening young people, rockers being pompadoured, leather jacket-wearing, motorbike-riding R&B fans. So two youth subcultures met and clashed. There was a notorious fight. If you look at the papers at the time, it sounded like it was practically World War Three had broken out. They were described as verminous. They were described as a threat to civilization. Look at our young people today. The world is on the brink of collapse. Apocalyptic language in all the popular press, extraordinary. Load of old nonsense. It's immoral. Panic. What's a moral panic? A moral panic is when something happens which attracts the attention, usually of mass media. The mass media inflate it, amplify it, and then cite it as an example of an ill that bedevils our society. Then that becomes a thing, and then there's a response on the part of the authorities. So, for example, the police have to go in and be there in strength, in numbers, at the next bank holiday weekend, lest mods and rockers come and have a bit of a heave ho again. And then that sort of enters the public consciousness and we all worry about the state of the nation and then something must be done and then usually there's a very defective piece of legislation that follows. Moral panic has actually, the term has been around since the 1830s, but it meant something rather different then. It's actually of quite a recent coinage, 1972, and it was a South African sociologist based in Britain called Stanley Cohen who coined it in a book which began with an examination of this. He's a sociologist, a phenomenon of the mods and rockers meeting on the beach at Brighton and having this old ding dong, which actually was just a few lads kicking off. It wasn't a big thing at all. Sorry,
0: was there bloodshed? I mean, obviously split lips, but was it worse than
2: that? 74 sort? arrests oh, okay. for public disorder. I mean, nothing, it really wasn't that at all, but it was just, it captured something yes. and symbolised something. It captured people's anxiety about this kind of youth subculture that the older generation didn't really understand or get, and spoke to a sort of sense of threat, I suppose, that that was something that like people punk, were anxious about.
0: Punk in the 70s was the same, wasn't it? Punk I, in the 70s. I remember Endless News analyses of what punk was and how dangerous it was. It was sort of end of civilization wasn't it?
2: Yeah. I mean I suppose the moral panics we might, I suppose a good one would be the Red Scare for example in America well the first Red Scare And the second Red Scare, the first Red Scare, was at the end of the First World War, there was a sense that revolution in Russia and elsewhere, the rise of socialism in Europe was threatening to the American way of life. And there was all sorts of legislation that was introduced to try to limit the power of labor and organized labor and some kind of notorious examples of that. And that, of course, repeated in the 1950s in the era of McCarthyism, although McCarthyism is a bit of a misnomer. McCarthy's sort of name was on it because he was the person most closely associated with it. But it was really Hooverism. It was J. Edgar Hoover, who was involved in the first Red Scare as well, who was determined to protect the American way of life by demonising, that's another feature of moral panics, you demonise the people whom you see as threats to that. So, for example, the Rosenbergs were executed, you know, electrocuted for espionage and there's a huge debate about whether they were guilty of that and certainly whether the punishment fitted the crime and again the house on american activities all those people in hollywood people losing their jobs in the public sector in america because they were thought to have a taint of association with communism that was a very big one the weirdest one i suppose there's some extraordinary ones about the satanic ritual abuse which was not that long ago in the 1980s do you Mm -hmm. remember this Mm -hmm. there was a sort of phenomenon that swept america and also europe of there was a kind of organized network of satanists who were abducting children and subjecting them to horrible forms of sexual and physical abuse there were cases in the uk in which this was alleged the notorious one in america that was most interesting was The McMartin Daycare Centre. It was a daycare centre in Manhattan Beach in California, run by this family, the McMartins. And there was a parent of a child there, this was in the 1980s, who alleged that her child had been abused by one of the people who worked there. And the allegations were extraordinary because not only was the child abused, but the child saw... Somebody fly. There were these extraordinary, rather bizarre allegations. So a letter went out to all other parents saying, Torture of children. And then a whole load of people sort of piled in. There was a public prosecutor who got wind of this and thought this is a bit. Mm. There were people who were trying to make their reputations as people responsible for the care of children. And again, all of a sudden, a moral panic is generated. And it was thought that there were networks of tunnels underneath this daycare centre. Children would say they were flushed down toilets into underground rooms where they were abused and then kind of put right again and sent back upstairs and be taken home by their parents, Charles.
0: But it sounds very similar to the Salem Witches, and that sort of panic which you're talking about is a hysteria, is that right?
2: well, mass hysteria is a sort of feature of it it's not quite the same thing I think moral panic has more ingredients in it than that, so the kind of media got onto it, and all of a sudden there was this kind of huge anxiety that was followed by parents thinking, "Oh my goodness, this is terrible our children and then that's taken up by kind of lawmakers so there was a forensic investigation of some of these allegations, but the evidence it produced was extraordinarily poor quality, because children were being asked leading questions. So the evidence that they got was really, the children were kind of saying what the investigators wanted them to say. Meanwhile, the people who were entirely innocent of any of these charges who were running this daycare centre, one of them was in jail for five years, no charges ever brought against him in the end. And of course it fueled a sort of moral panic that spread around the world. There, I think there were something like 12,000 accusations of children being subjected to organised satanic abuse. And there has never been one that was proved. I mean, there may have been people around who kind of nodded in the direction of that sort of thing. Was it organised? No, of course it wasn't. It's a moral panic. It speaks to people's fears, anxiety about the safety of children, perhaps. It's taken up by the media. All of a sudden, legislation comes in Poor forensic methods are brought in because they're doing it on the hoof, they're not really thinking about it, and people suffer. The Dangerous Dogs Act in this country, do you remember that? Yes. Again, there were some awful cases of children being killed and hurt very badly by dangerous dogs. Lots of them were American pit bulls, but a piece of legislation was rushed through. There was an air of moral panic about this, which made certain dog breeds illegal and they could be confiscated and destroyed if they were found. The problem was with that, of course, was it wasn't not all dogs
0: of a certain breed were bad. It was a bad piece of legislation. I remember that. It was the Rottweiler got a really bad press, didn't it? And, and apparently they're quite, I don't know them that well, but they can be very decent. Do you know what the most dangerous dog breed is? Jack Russell. The Dachshund.
2: Well, I, thought, <laughs> I should have spotted that one, yeah, Richard. You're more likely to be bitten by a dachshund than any other dog, actually, uh, according to the figures. I mean, it's unlikely to kill you. And of course, at the moment, we've got big controversy at the moment about these enormous American fighting dogs that the look the ones, size of yes. small lions. So, you know, of course, we need to have concerns about that. But it's another example. Everyone was kind of absolutely terrified about Staffordshire Bull Terriers, most of whom are absolutely fine, of course. So that's another one
1: i just keep thinking because i feel like these things come up all the time like these sort of different moral panics with social media and there's always i feel like there's always one yeah and do you think that with the way people discuss all these these events and things now on social media and how people you know something gets vilified so quickly Is there a difference now to, say, 30, 40 years ago or even 20 years ago with how these things spread so much? Because this sounds like such a common thing now. But the examples you give would have been perhaps because they were more, I suppose, moved around by mainstream media as opposed to just anyone posting on Twitter.
2: It's much, much more volatile. And the other thing is you get repeats now. Pizzagate. For example, Pizzagate, we think of it, don't we, as a kind of claim made by Prince Andrew about what he did on his daughter's birthday party. But actually, Pizzagate refers to an extraordinary thing in America where it was alleged that a pizza parlor in Washington comet ping pong had a basement in which children were kept for the sexual satisfaction of Hillary Clinton and her coterie. I mean, completely bananas. Basically, what happened was that Hillary Clinton's chief of staff, there was a leak of emails. And there was a sort of, in that email, he discussed going with his brother for a pizza. Cheese pizza, CP, was seen as a sort of shorthand for child pornography because evil Hillary Clinton died. So there was this absurd thing, kind of gathered force and everything. And then somebody actually turned up at this pizza joint in Washington with an automatic weapon and shot a cupboard because he was convinced that that was where these children who were being kept by Hillary Clinton and her evil... So that happened in 2016. Social media, and of course, that happened because of social media. Social media responded very quickly. The hashtags were taken down. Everyone sort of calmed down a bit. And then it repeated again in 2020. Interestingly, another election year. Only this case, there was a very interesting moment in this. Justin Bieber adjusting his beanie. Justin Bieber was doing an Instagram and he adjusted his beanie. Somebody live tweeting, or I wasn't tweeting, it was on some different format, I think TikTok, I can't remember, said, Justin, if you've been a victim of Pizzagate abuse, touch your hat. And he did touch his hat for (laughs) (laughs) completely not not for that reason. (laughs) And then all of a sudden it all took off again. You want a favourite fact from me, right? We do, we're desperate for it. By the pricking of my thumbs, something wicked this way comes. Macbeth. Oh. Right? Which is. You mentioned it. The Salem witch trials. I mean, what well, quite a moral panic in the sense there wasn't mass media involved. But the Salem witch trials, in which 19 people, 15 women and four men, were hanged for witchcraft on Gallows Hill in 1690, whenever it was. When you look at the evidence about that, really interesting. Most of the people, certainly the first lot who were accused, convicted, and hanged, were involved in a property dispute with a wealthy family called the Putnams. And when you start looking at these moral panics, when you really take them apart, you will generally find that there is something of economic interest to the aggressive party in that. And it was because of a clerical error, a clerical error by a man called Increase Norwell, who was the clerk to the governors of Essex County in 1639. And he just made a mistake ever entering who had title to a piece of property. It caused a row that rumbled on for 40, 50 years and resulted in the end of the persecution of the people of Salem and the Salem witch trials and 19 deaths.
0: Goodness, yeah, Yeah. so sad.
3: That's a good fact. I
1: think we've got a fact from our disembodied voice as well.
3: Yeah, just a quick clarification from me. So the Mods and Rockers riots during the 1960s, there were 76 arrests in Brighton and 64 in Margate. And Salem Witch Trials, uh, 1692 to 93.
2: Thank you very much, disembodied voice.
3: I
1: was quite impressed that you managed to find a link to Charles's topic and I'm going to find one too. This is going to be one of those rare ones <laughs> where we all circle together. So finally then... It's on to me and my topic is something that I've been looking into for actually three years or so <laughs> and it's the topic of my next book so I'm going to be talking about the Winchester Mortry Chest as a sort of shameless little plug but also because yeah, it feels like the yeah. only thing I can talk about these days really so I think I'm going to have to do another Richard really and ask you to come with me <laughs> 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 to Winchester in the southwest of England and to the cathedral and walk through the doors and down the central nave this was once the longest building north of the alps and used to be the capital of anglo-saxon england now if you walk down the nave you get to the choir and to the presbytery and you look up and you've got these elaborately carved stone screens High up on a little ledge, you can quite easily miss them. In the little alcoves and the arches are six elaborately carved chests, each with uh, painted inscriptions on them, and these date to the 17th century. And you can just as you could just walk past them and miss them. But what is so important about them is that they contain the mortal remains of some of the most illustrious kings and royals and bishops of england and of the creation of england and they've got the most incredible story actually over time so dipping into charles's specialism of the civil war if we go back to 1642 and if you were standing outside the cathedral on that day you would have probably seen between 9 and 10 in the morning the parliamentarian troops storming the doors uh, some on horseback riding down the nave drums and torches lit intent on complete destruction of the cathedral as a part of the war and what they did was they actually clambered up on those stone screens and took the chests. originally there were 10 chests pushed a few of them down rifled through them, took what they contained, which were these human bones, and used them as missiles to smash the stained glass windows of the cathedral. And afterwards, when all sort of died down, clergy kind of gathered up everything they could and stuffed it back in again.
2: But not knowing if they got the right leg. No, Mm. no.
1: So this is part of the problem, because... This was a complete mess and everything was crushed. So up to that point, there had been 10 chests. They all had names on them of some of these amazing kings. So they go back to, some of them back to the 7th century. So we're talking about the earliest kings of what was then Wessex. This is before England becomes England. And they go right the way through to the latest, which is William Rufus, who you mentioned in your story, who died in about 1100. So he was the son of uh, William the Conqueror. So these bodies, the rest are sort of in between there somewhere go through this entire story of, of the creation of the kingdom of Wessex, the creation of England and all the way to the Norman conquest including most remarkably uh, King Knute the Great. So one of my favorites uh, I like talked him about too. before. Yeah, he's good, yeah. isn't he? So the Scandinavian Viking king who ruled England for 18 years as part of a North Sea empire is buried in with all the, the English kings. Yeah, so in the 1640s, uh, it wasn't quite known who was who. And actually, as it happens, these chests date right the way back to the 12th century. They were first created Led ancestors of these chests in the 12th century when Henry of Blois who was then the Bishop of Winchester, took all these other royal burials that had been people who'd been buried in Winchester for Hundreds of years, he thought they were all in disgraceful locations that weren't, you know, respectful enough. So he gathered them all up, put them in chests. But even he didn't quite know which one was which. So he stuffed them all together. So and also big... he
0: was related to some, wasn't he? Yes. I mean he was William the Conqueror's grandson. King Stephen's brother and you know the nephew of William Rufus he was he wasn't just doing a bishoply thing bishopric type of thing absolutely he and this wanted is, to do family Pelmanism put them all back
1: yeah this is part of the big stories the people who've sort of used these bones over this whole history they've done it really deliberately for political purposes and he was just one of them it's not just that they're sort of trying to do a sort of Jigsaw. nice thing yes. <laughs>
2: I mean the sort of relic value even if these were not Saints, some of them were, of course, weren't they? Yes. There's still this belief that the material remains of someone have some sort of connection to divine power and significance.
1: Yes, and these ones are really interesting because they've been used in exactly that way. So they were being very deliberately manipulated by these early kings. And Winchester in itself is really extraordinary with the churches there. So the cathedral now that was built in the 11th century is actually following up two other churches. So Old Minster and New Minster. One of them dates all the way back to the 7th century, Old Minster. The second one was built by one of Alfred the Great's sons, Edward the Elder. And he wanted a new, completely new church for himself and his family. And he took his father's remains that were originally in Old Minster and moved them because he said, well, you know, moving these remains, moving these old bones means that that essentially the power and the the sort of interest in the old king goes into his regime. So they're using them really deliberately the whole time.
2: Legitimacy. Because yes. every, every, it's like what we were talking about with those warring Scottish chieftains. Everybody wants legitimacy, don't they, for their rule to be accepted.
1: Precisely. And saints are really interesting. They're a big part of this story as well. So even people like Knut, he was really interested in saints and relics and he was actually moving them, collecting them. Lots of these kings were. They were collecting from around the country and moving them very deliberately, including a lot of those allegedly killed by his ancestors. So he was obviously a Viking king who'd come in. He's partially successful because he was the first king King who could very successfully stop other Viking raiders. So by the time he became King of England, the country was essentially exhausted by all these Viking raids. But he was the first one who could really stop them because, you know, he was a respected Viking himself.
2: This is fascinating. So you've got your Viking raiders, right? They arrive. After a while, they begin to stay. After a while, they begin to settle. Presumably after a while, they begin to sort of go native. Yeah. And at what point do they morph from being kind of foreigners who come in to invade and pillage and loot at what point do they become settled natives?
1: This is a really, really good question, and it's one I want to be trying to answer all the time. I actually think it happens really quickly, and especially in England. So we have settlement of Scandinavians from at least the 9th century, possibly even before that, and especially in the north and east of England. So by the time we get to Knut's time, the 11th century, a huge part of England is actually, essentially, Anglo-Scandinavian, and especially those sort of northern and eastern parts, and they have been for a really long time. So Part of the reason why Knut can come in and be so successful is because there are so many Scandinavians or people with Scandinavian ancestry. And then, interestingly, later, as we were talking about Henry being related to William the Conqueror and all of that. Now, William also is actually related to Knut's wife, Emma, who is the only woman to be named in these chests. So Emma of Normandy was his, I believe, great aunt. And so he had a legitimacy through her. She came from Normandy. She was Knut's wife, having previously been his predecessor's wife. Again, we what you're talking about, Mary. Yes, <laughs> you, marry,
0: you marry the victor who, yes. cu- who displaces or murders your husband. A bittersweet experience. <laughs> yes, <laughs> <laughs> Pillow exactly. talk, we like, on the first night. Rather <laughs> yeah. tricky. But also, Richard, I was just thinking with your question to Kat there, it happened in France too. So the French got fed up with being raided. So they traded off and gave the Viking raiders what became Normandy, the land of the Norse just to stop them. And I think they did integrate to a fair fair degree
2: there. I was talking to a friend on Facebook yesterday who's a Geordie from Newcastle. And it's a different place. There's something about... I mean, it's obviously part of England, the northeast of England, but the culture is different. The language is different. There's something about it that's just different. Red hair, blue eyes. That's the Scandinavian heritage, I guess.
1: Yeah, I think there's a lot... To it. And if you look at things like place names, you know, they're so, I go up north and um, you sort of see names that are so familiar and you could practically be in in Scandinavia. And I think there's something in that, definitely.
0: Well, yeah, there was a piece on BBC the other day, a couple of weeks ago, about one of the West, Western Islands of Scotland, Barra, where they thought, oh, well, we knew we had an invasion by the Vikings, but we got rid of them. And they've done a test, DNA test. They are all Viking. (laughs) Viking. They all got butchered. Because they weren't needed, the people on the island. And then again, place names. There's a big field there, which if you go back to the Nordic interpretation, would be called the King's Field, things like that. Yeah. Have you landed on the beach at Barrow in that twin engine dotter? I have. It's fantastic. Great, isn't it? Yeah. Sorry, <laughs> I've <know. digression. laughs> Another rabbit hole.
3: <laughs>
1: Another rabbit hole. Mm-hmm. Um, no, but I think your question is a really important one. And actually, what's so interesting, I think, about this story and what I was researching when I was writing this book was a bit what we're talking about with Macbeth. Earlier, this sort of idea and sense that people have of this part of history, and why you know the Norman invasion is such a separate thing, and the Vikings were something that they were fought off and defeated, but actually they weren't. They were settling. These Scandinavian names were settling in a huge part of the culture, and you see that a lot if you dig into something like Winchester story and these chests. But the narratives that we've got, it's things like Alfred the Great. So I'm I'm doing this. I think I mentioned this already. This um, life in the UK test for British citizenship, where one of the question one of the big points in the syllabus the question is who defeated the Vikings and the answer is Alfred the Great of course he didn't I mean there was- but that's what we think <laughs> that's what we think that is the official UK version of the history if you to
2: Winchester you look at the statuary <laughs> it tells that story yeah, doesn't it that He United England and defeated the Vikings
1: yeah and yeah. then later on you know um, decades later you have a Viking king ruling for 18 years when England is part of Viking Scandinavia
2: and the bones And preserved in Winchester Cathedral, So these bones
1: are still there. So it seems likely that certainly all those people... So we've got eight kings, two bishops, and one queen named on the chests. But the interesting thing is that in 2012, a new research forensic project was started to investigate those bones to see if they could use modern scientific techniques to find out. Are we going to talk
2: about plaque again, dental plaque (laughs) again? (laughs) No, not this time,
1: but... uh, dying to get that in as well (laughs) similar thing, so still ongoing so we haven't got quite the results yet but it's not my project so some some colleagues working on it but preliminary results came out in 2019 included that there's definitely one woman in there matching emma of normandy really really well dates seem to be spot on so the only slight problem is there's only meant to be sort of mm, 12 to 15 people in these chests and there's actually at least 23
2: bit mixed up. Just
1: give it? and take a few so we don't quite know who they are, but yes. Question. Yes.
2: As a churchman, I sometimes think about a tension between the need that I would have, as a church person, to preserve in the sacred space the relics of people dear to history and beloved in their time. Scientists sometimes want to come in and have a different attitude towards those remains is that tricky
1: absolutely i think it's really oh, really
0: heathen. tricky. he's basically asking those are
2: competing <laughs> claims yeah. over what's right and proper for those remains yeah
1: yeah absolutely and i think that is a really really good question it's one you know sorry, i'm a bioarchaeologist so that's sort of what i've trained to do is work on human remains and those are real people's bones that you know teeth that you're working on and you take some obviously they've never given permission uh, so it's a question we have quite a lot you know what is the right thing to do uh, it's a tricky one. and i never quite know where i stand but i think if you have a really good reason to do it you need to have a, a really it's not just for fun or for interest you know that be wouldn't it be great to might find out? as well yeah might yeah. as well why not they just that. Um, but if you have a really good reason to do it if you know that you're doing it well if you're treating them always with dignity and respect and you're not taking too much you're using the you know, proper techniques, you're dealing with them as respecting the fact that they are or were people at one point and the development that the sort of information that we can get out of them was approving who they really were so that's one of the big questions here are they actually those people or could yeah. there be some completely random one from 200 years ago yeah. or are they who they say they are is there something that we didn't know can we sort of change our perspective on that history this leads me to my best fact from that story actually well actually I've got
0: favorite so fact. many
1: favorite facts favorite <laughs> yes so one of my favorite facts from that it's, it's a lot is actually one of the discoveries that they made in that study that came out in 2019, they found two very young boys or two sort of adolescent boys. So two boys probably aged between 11 and 15 when they died. And because they are there, they must have been really high status individuals, so probably royal or sort of noble blood. And they're both Norman as well.
0: Well, I think I know the 15 year old could well be... Richard, who was one of William the Conqueror's sons, who died as a teenager in a hunting accident in New Forest. You know the hunting accident? Yeah, yes, there's a, very dangerous a pursuit. lot of them.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So anybody ever ask, as you go hunting in the New Forest, just say no. no, no, no. <laughs> he <laughs> got squashed
0: again. between his saddle and a tree. Yes. So oh. the bones would be looking in a certain... That
2: happened to Thomas condition. Aquinas on a donkey. Oh. Well, <laughs> the donkey... He and Roy his... Kinnear as well. Well, got squashed on the thing. He fell off a donkey. Well, well, no, the donkey trotted along. It was a low-hanging branch, and Aquinas hit the branch. And that was was... this is
1: the New Forest as well.
2: This was actually in southern Italy. He ah. was on his way to Rome for a council. So, sorry.
1: So pilgrimage to Rome or hunting in the New Forest, both things we should.
2: Yeah. But you know that yeah, thing when people say you're more likely to die in a donkey accident than be struck by. Well, it happens. <laughs> you can die in a donkey accident. I've never heard anyone, I've never heard anyone, anyone, say, anyone say that.
0: that. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> <laughs> exactly
1: there we go I'll
2: look out for that are these bone chests have you been in them Kat? no can you get near them? no well I mean I was there a little while ago and I, in fact I noticed them and I was yes. with my friend Catherine who's the Dean of Winchester now I looked up and I said oh, what are those things there? I took a picture of them and then, in fact I tweeted it and we talked about it Yeah. and she told me what they were and I thought well Get cap and she gets some step ladder and get up and yes. have a good old look.
1: <laughs> it's already been done. People are on it already. They are absolutely extraordinary. And the fact you know you untangle the whole story, it's like it's like a sort of Dan Brown story, but much better and real.
3: Yeah. And <laughs> <laughs> sort of
1: just looking at what people have done with them over the years, and the fact that these bones, these individuals, go back and they've been gathered and collected. I mean, I've have been obsessed with it for three years now, which is why this is <laughs> the book that came back to it. So there we go. That That's f- my fascinating. story. Thank When's you. the book out? Yeah. Tomorrow. <gasps> That's so the bone
0: chests. What an ideal Christmas present that would make for a relative <laughs> or friend, wouldn't it? One just? who likes non-fiction and then fiction. They could look at a series about a vicar with ducks and two Yes, i <laughs> Have to go
1: looking for that. <laughs> so that leaves us to our favourite part, and this is when we get to see what the new disembodied voice well we've got to see
0: if the new disembodied Finally. voice is still awake because that's the longest one we've ever done
2: we didn't go down a rabbit hole we kind of <laughs> went into a parallel universe <laughs> yeah,
1: too
3: easy so yeah so we had Charles as the winner last week the first of the series yes indeed and I am still here I've been listening hard trying to make my decision um, but I think it's difficult to compete with a three year obsession so congratulations to Kat for yes. handing it to you, you this go. week thank well done thank you
1: Okay, so I'm now going to have to go and find another new three year obsession to share so that I can keep up this victory for next week. <laughs> but that's going to be next week's problem. But let's talk about our topics for next week. So, Richard, you're going to be talking about the Panacea Society, which you're going to have to explain to me because I have no clue.
0: Oh, what that is. treat and store for you, cat.
1: You're going to wait. You're not going it doesn't to. doesn't sound give like, a like one of my teaser.
0: crack military units from a few weeks ago. It's a, it's a more refined version. It's Do you good. know about them? I, I've never heard of them. Oh.
1: <laughs> okay well we're gonna to have to just wait excitedly. Charles you are going to be talking about the prisoners of the Tower of London.
0: Lovely plenty of scope for Gore.
1: And I will be talking about backpacks.
0: Backpacks
1: yes
2: Well you're Norwegian right? you get a backpack issued at birth. Yes
0: well there we go
1: that <laughs> that's part it. of it
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> So along with our skis um, So that's it for this week. And a huge thank you to everyone out there for listening. Please do subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review because it really helps people find us when they're searching for a new podcast to listen to. You can also send us an email if you'd like, especially if you'd like to suggest a topic. That's rabbitholedetectives@gmail.com, at gmail.com. And you can find us in the Daily Telegraph every Wednesday in our Rabbit Hole Detectives column discussing our favourite facts from the show. So, in the words from Lewis Carroll's Alice, "'A grin without a cat,' the most curious thing I ever saw in all my life. Goodbye.
2: Bye. Bye.